You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And uh, it's time now for a veteran story. And this is going to be a very, very interesting veteran story. A a different angle, but one that uh, I love, as a matter of fact. But before we get started, uh, we're going to take our moment of silent prayer for our veterans and those that are serving on active duty, and particularly want to say an extra little thought or prayer for our Texas National Guard, of which I was part of at one time, that's doing the federal government's job right at the moment on our Texas border. And they're being shot at by the cartels. They, guess where they got their weapons from? Hello, Joe. Sleepy Joe and his Afghan policy supplied the weapons so our Texas National Guard can be shot at. If that doesn't wake you up and want to make a change, I don't know what else will. But at some point, I can almost assure you that... Texas will have had enough, and they will return fire at some point. But with that being said, let's take just a moment and uh, think about those that have served and those that are serving. And now let's go to Pete Mecca and his guest on America's Web Radio, A Veteran Story. So with that being said, Pete, it's all yours. Thank you, David. Well, good morning, America. Uh, Welcome to A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I am your host, Pete Mecca. This morning, we have as my guest, John Hemp. John... uh, served with the United States Air Force Air Police in the late 60s. Uh, He became a canine dog handler, and he also served in Vietnam. We'll get to all that in just a minute. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Welcome welcome aboard. Uh, Okay, super good. Now, you were the third of seven children, six boys and a girl, and you were born and raised in Berkeley, California. Considering it's the late 60s, how in the world did you get from Berkeley into the military without going to Canada? <laughs> Good start. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was a mediocre uh, college sophomore um, growing up in a town where the worst thing that you probably could have done early on was tip over an outhouse on a construction site. But uh, 
Boy, by the time the mid to late 60s had cruised around, uh, Mario Savio and the communists were trying to turn over the country. Um, I, I uh, wasn't very well focused at that stage, uh, and easy pickings for the draft. I got my draft notice in October of 65, and uh, wasn't really hot on the idea of wearing a helmet, carrying a gun, and crawling through the grass, so I you know, beat a path to the Navy and the Air Force and the Coast Guard and everybody else trying to find an alternative. Uh, the only ones that entertained my... Uh, my appeal was the Air Force, and that's when I finally tested with the recruiter, and the test results were a little surprising to them. So they accommodated my sealed draft notice, and uh, I became an airman. All right, uh, very good. So I think you and yeah. I uh, got there just about the same time. Uh, you did yeah. go to Lackland Air Force Base. You got there in January of 1966. You can tell yep. us about your uh, basic training if you'd like, but you also participated in the longest basic training on record. Tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got started in uh, January of 66 at BASIC at Lackland, and uh, then we had this uh, virus show up, and uh, meningitis hit Lackland uh, with a storm, and so they shut us down. They, uh, they took all the new uh, inductees to Amarillo, uh, from that point, so that they would be insulated from the meningitis at Lackland. But uh, our our basic our six week basic training got extended by about four weeks because uh, we were locked down for anything but Chow Hall and and uh, for those guys who found uh, religion on Sunday because they'd actually let you out to go to church. But uh, did you contact uh, the meningitis? Uh, no, as a matter of fact, I didn't, and I don't know anybody that did, so they apparently did a pretty good job of uh, of locking us down, but uh, went right back to the regiment after uh, they figured they had it under control, and I completed my basic. Okay. Uh, when you said you got out of basic training, 40 of the 44 airmen went to the Air Police Tech School. Uh, how, how, how did that happen? Well, I... You know, they they told you, you know, I was going to be a loadmaster or an air traffic controller or a fuel specialist. I tested pretty well. I figured my scores were pretty good, uh, high 90s. Um, and uh, they marched us out onto a very wet PT field uh, uh, in a late February morning, early March. And uh, the guy pulled the first four orders off the clipboard and advised those guys that they were going to Chanute for cook school and then chucked the clipboard chucked the clipboard into the mud and told the rest of us to report to AP Tech School at Kelly the following morning. So wow. apparently they needed cops. Uh, apparently, apparently. Yeah. Okay, how long did how long did the Air Police Tech School last? Uh, AP Tech School was like 6 to 7 weeks and and that went fine. Um you know, it's just basic uh, UCMJ and protocols for engaging people, <laughs> both both verbally and physically. And uh, yeah, we we wrapped right. it up in about six to seven weeks. All right. Well, you were in for a culture shock because your next port of call was Wheeler Air Base in Tripoli, uh, uh, Libya. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know who I upset. I don't know who I upset at tech school. <laughs> okay, My dream sheet you, was... Uh, <laughs> there, there at Wheelis, you uh, 
you, that's where you got into the uh, canine school, uh, like OJT, and uh, mm-hmm. you were assigned to a dog called Aster. Tell us about your training and your first dog, Aster. Um, military dogs, even back then, primarily sentry, uh, although the variations uh, developed rather quickly with the escalation of Vietnam. Sentry dog was the basic military dog back then, all chefs. Um, they took a they took a puppy off of a farm someplace in Eden, Oklahoma, and turned him into a beast. And uh, the training was uh, was selective. Usually tried to match up uh, the, the the girth of a handler with the girth of a dog. So if you had a big dog, you didn't want to put a 120 pound kid on him. Uh, but beyond that, there had to be a chemistry in the in the matchups of some sort. So they they probably worked pretty hard at getting uh, personality matches on dogs and handlers. Yeah, you mentioned um, your trainer. We, you said we, you had a good one. Well, I was uh, hoping to go to school at Wiesbaden, in Germany. There was six slots uh-huh. that were open uh, in '66 for. Um, school slots at, at Wiesbaden from Wheelis, but uh, there was a guy by the name of Mo Markadapi uh, <laughs> that was already stirring the pot back then, and uh, I think, too, uh, Wheelis looked like O'Hare Airport. Um, there was stuff flying in 24-7, in and out, day and night, and I think the even the smartest Arab figured out that uh, a lot of this stuff's got to be going to Israel. So the trouble was brewing as early as 66, and they canceled the uh, school slots. I was selected as one of the six uh, for canine out of security. Um, but they canceled the school slots because of manpower requirements at Wheelis. So three of us got to do OJT on-the-job training at Wheelis, and we were assigned a senior handler one-on-one to go through the entire sentry dog manual. Uh, mine, a guy named Brenner, God bless him, uh, was a real stickler. Uh, the other two guys had it a little easier than I did. I was busting an ammo can on the end of a leash for a lot longer than the other two guys training an ammo can. But uh, if I didn't score 100% on the uh, testing material segments as we progressed through the training, he'd make me go back and do it again. So my training was a little bit longer and a little more intense than the other two guys. But uh, I don't think there's any question in my mind that was the best damn handler that had ever been produced on an OJT program. This uh, Renner was incredible. My dog was incredible, too. Aster was... Uh, 96 pounds, uh, optimal working weight, big dog, aggressive. Um, whoever had him before I did, uh, did a great job. He was about five years old when I picked him up, and he was ready to rock and roll. Uh, we took dogs from, like I said, you know, off-the-farm puppies to savage beasts in, in the aggression training in sentry dog. And... Uh, Everybody was a bad guy except for the handler. And then once in a while, the handler was a bad guy, too. But uh, the dogs were uh, probably the most efficient soldiers I've ever come across anywhere. Wow. Yeah, you you describe Aster as, as a beast. I mean, that dog was, uh, let's say, well-trained, and he would turn on a trainer. Is that correct? 
Oh, yeah, you know, if you had a bad day and you were a little rough on them and, or uh, unaccommodating, uh, they, they had a habit of letting you know that you were out of line, and it usually came at the end of teeth, you know. Uh, if, if you were a dog handler back then and hadn't been bit by your own dog, you hadn't been to the rodeo yet. Uh, these, these dogs were incredibly aggressive. We took them to the limit of breaking them. And, and when we broke dogs, we they got sent back to Lackland or to uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, but the majority of them, uh, we took right to that limit, right to that spot where it was uh, one man, one dog, and everybody else was a bad guy. I know that uh, you sent me a uh, photo of Pastor uh, bearing his teeth. I wouldn't want to be a victim of those teeth. I can tell you that right now. No, a uh, 70-pound ship has about 700 pounds of pressure and four teeth. Uh, that's bone-breaking stuff. So if a 70-pound chef has 700 pounds, what's a 90 or 100-pound chef got? Um, you know, we took the wolf and turned him into a working dog is what we did. And, okay. Uh, uh, those dogs. Yeah. John, got to interrupt you. We're going to a first break. This is so fascinating. Um, I already, I'm already in love with Astor. Folks, we're taking our first question right back in a minute. <laughs> Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmv. HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with John Hemp. John was a canine dog handler with the United States Air Force, and that includes Vietnam. Uh, John, you were in the Wheelis Air Force Base over in Tripoli, Libya. Uh, that area was called River City, and you had trouble in River City uh, during the Six-Day uh, uh, War in the Middle East between Israel and the Arab states. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, uh, like I mentioned earlier we were sitting at O'Hare. We were watching tons and tons of stuff go in and out in KC-97s and newer stuff. Uh, and there's you know, a lot of destinations in Europe, perhaps, but uh, everybody pretty much figured out that a lot of this stuff was going to Israel. Um, and Gaddafi was already stirring the pot. We found one of his buddies in a ditch out in the countryside that didn't agree with him. Uh, canine, yeah, canine found him outside the wall at a place we called Hot Point. It was the uh, USAFE Weapons Center. If you look at an aerial uh, map on Google of Tripoli, you'll see the, what was Wheelis Air Base smack dab uh, on, the, on the beach uh, just east of Tripoli. And then look a little further east uh, into the desert, and you're going to find a place... Uh, about the size of Wheelis Air Base, over 500 acres of bomb dump. 
And uh, that was, we called it Hot Point. And boy, it was a hot point from the minute the war started on June 5th. Um, we were visited by what I can only guess all these years later, Tunis didn't have much of a military, so they had to be Algerians, and they weren't Libyans, had surrounded the bomb dump, and I think they were waiting for instructions to take the dump and haul whatever they needed out of there into the, the melee at the uh, east end of the Mediterranean. But uh, uh, it was there was a lot of trouble. Uh, the, the Israelis took care of their issue in six days, thus the name Six Day War. Uh, we didn't stand down until August. Uh, the stuff was still oh. flying back and forth over the walls, and we were uh, subject to uh, 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 some terrorist activity around the base and certainly around Hot Point itself. Um, Did you lose anybody? Uh, I don't. I, there, there were lives lost in Tripoli. I don't know to this day because uh, Johnson slammed the lid on media when that started. I don't think things were going pretty poorly in Vietnam. He didn't want bad publicity coming out of a U.S. engagement with Arabs in the Middle East. So they slapped the. Uh, slap the lid on media. The only person that ever wrote anything about the siege of Wheelis was Michael Oren, who was the uh, uh, Israeli uh, soldier at the time, but became the ambassador to the U.S. from Israel. And in his book, The Six-Day War, that's the only only reference I've ever seen anywhere to what was going on at Wheelis Air Base. But uh, lost my dog, and that was a real bummer. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure it was intended. Well, I was pretty sure it was intended for me, but maybe my dog got in the way when the guy pulled off or whatever. But uh, he took a round to the chest, and uh, took a round to the chest, and I I did everything I possibly could to first aid, uh, but it was a pretty massive wound. Uh, I'm still ticked off at the Air Force because they reported on his control card that he passed as a result of gastroenteritis. Well, that was one hell of a case of gastroenteritis, I'll tell you. Um, so they did report that um, got killed in action? Yeah, well, the, the dog never got credit for KIA. Uh, they're not. They weren't going to give. They weren't going to give any any uh, credence to what was going on there at all. So his uh, his control card. For the Air Force, still to this day, shows that he passed from a gastroenter uh, issue, but it was a arcano. <laughs> it was an arcano gastro interruption, and uh, I'm from the slug, which I had and wish I could find. I really do. Uh, we were guessing that it was a French round, French rifle. So that would have probably, yeah, it probably would have been the Algerians. That were that were surrounding the base, and uh, so, so they were just the taking pop shots, guys. Yeah, we we exchanged a little bit of stuff back and forth. I know uh, one of our guys uh, challenged uh, somebody at the wall of the bomb dump <laughs> early, early, early one morning, and when they didn't stop, he fragged them. And uh, when the sun came up, uh, we all we could see was a camel with a couple of eggs in the air. So apparently we had fragged one of the camels. 
I gotta ask you this, uh, John. Um, it was a serious incident, but yet uh, you told me about, it and I was I was humored by it. You made the rank of E four twice. Tell us about that. Oh yes, yeah. I'm, I I I tease my senior NCO buddies because uh, if if you can make E four twice, does that make you an E eight? I was at the kennels uh, doing kennel duty uh, after I'd lost the dog and got a phone call from the LEs at uh, Central Security Control. They needed a backup at the officers club uh, for an LE unit. And I thought, well, what the heck are they calling canine for, right? So I put my stuff away, hopped in the truck and went over to the officers club on the side of the base. And when I got there, there was... uh, major and an lc in the parking lot that were kind of pushing at each other getting ready to go to dukes and no le unit that i could see anywhere i think they were probably parked around the corner didn't want to have a mess with an lc but uh, i walked into the parking lot and i looked at the major and i gave him a command to sit down and he did to his credit the guy was smart and uh, you know they're looking at a six to 200 pound mp i don't you know what are you going to do uh, the LC, on the other hand, had a attitude issue, and he started uh, telling me that uh, I was going to be scrubbing, you know, garbage cans for the rest of my career in the Air Force. Uh, completely out of line, taking him on. Yeah, that's a lieutenant colonel. Yeah. Okay. And the finger, he he kept poking me in the chest with the finger while he was, you know, chewing me out. And I, after about three or four times, I just finally told him, I said, "Look, you got to keep your hands to yourself." You know, you, you don't touch me. And the finger came up again, and I probably wasn't using a whole lot of common sense, but I popped him in the jaw and dropped him in the parking lot. And uh, did the paperwork, took him back to BOQ, made sure he was in a bunk. And, you know, the discipline is somebody else's issue, not mine. I just took care of the, the problem there at the, at the Oak Club. But uh, found out later after uh, Article 15 that I had used uh, uh, excessive force and unauthorized you know, use of force on this guy. So I lost a stripe and a, and a paycheck for a while. And uh, to the credit of my CO, who was a brand new, I mean, this guy shows up uh, as the CO of one of the largest security police MP units in USAFE, and he's a butter bar. He's a second lieutenant. His name was Anderson. And I think he was doing a review of the disciplinary files and stuff on the kids that were in his charge, and mine came up, and he thought something didn't smell quite right. So he uh, talked to me one day about what had happened, and I just explained it again. You know, I said, it's all there in the report. And uh, I'm getting ready to go home in November, and I got a surprise uh, visit at the kennels one day, came by, and he picked me up, and he said, you you're going with me, you keep your mouth shut, you don't say a word, and we'll see what we can do here. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to get riffed again. But uh, we paid a visit to the base commander's office and uh, got an audience with the base commander. And when I went in, the guy was sitting there. He had my file on his desk, I guess. And his only question to me is, why didn't I hit him with a stick? And uh, I told him, sir, I'm canine. We don't carry sticks. We you know, I, I had a 1911. I could have shot him, but uh, you know, no stick to hit him with. So I hit him with my fist, and 
I was admonished for, you know, doing that. But he said, uh, you know, you only got a week or two here left on my base. I want you to go deep six. I don't want to see you anywhere on this property. Uh, we'll see what we can do. But uh, well, I'll tell you what, John, I, if I'm up to second lieutenants, uh, right, and I've known a lot of them, uh, if they had an uh, E-4 in their ranks at Coe Cockpit, uh, lieutenant colonel, <laughs> probably, probably put you in for the medal. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they they didn't have that medal back then. <laughs> um, I, I, I was very, very I mean, surprised. Uh, yeah, John, uh, uh, explain who Maynard Farmer is. Oh, geez, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, when I got to Nam, yeah, when I got to Nam, um, there was I heard jokes about Maynard Farmer, and I thought, okay, I'm going to meet this guy because he's obviously a dog handler. You know, everybody talked about Maynard Farmer, uh, the dog handler, and uh, it wasn't until I got myself into some uh, scrutiny for something that I had done that my buddy said immediately offered up when command was asking who was responsible for something that either got missing or destroyed or blown up or whatever. Said, oh, Maynard Farmer did that. And I'm looking at my buddy and I'm thinking, boy, this Maynard Farmer guy must be really incredible. He's everywhere, but nobody's ever seen him. And I finally caught on to what Maynard Farmer was. Uh, dog handlers are a close-knit bunch. We're different. Uh, not egotistically different. We're not the SO guys, and we never had that head trip. But uh, if you were dog, you were night vision. You were the guy that was 40 acres of dog and a man, and, and you plugged it up every night. We were pretty serious about what we did. And as a so result of that, So Maynard Farmer was a fictitious fall guy for the canine. Maynard Farmer was a ghost. He, Maynard Farmer was the fictitious dog handler in Vietnam that got blamed for anything and everything that ever went wrong. Uh, and I wish I could have been a fly on a wall huh? when uh, the, the guys at, uh, at command are looking through their duty rosters trying to find Maynard Farmer. <laughs> that is great. Okay, we are... Uh, uh, you're leaving uh, Wheelis Air Force Base in Tripoli. Uh, yep. You're going to Blyville, Arkansas with a SAC unit, and then you're going to get prepared to go to Vietnam. Uh, we will be back in just a minute, folks. We're going to our second break. Uh, stand by and hear more from John Hemp, or you can also call him Maynard Farmer, whatever you wish. You'll be right back. <laughs> If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. 
I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with John Hemp, a canine dog handler in the United States Air Force during the Vietnam War. Uh, John, uh, right before you went to Nam, you did go to Blytheville, Arkansas for a while. You were with the 97th Bomb Wing. That's a SAC unit, Strategic Air Command. Your dog's name was Sam. Uh, tell us a little bit about SAC. Uh, we don't have to go into great detail, but I also, also want to hear about a roadside barbecue joint the Dairy Queen. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, when I got to Blytheville, it was my first exposure to SAC. I mean, everybody knew that, that uh, SAC was supposedly the, the creme de la creme of the Air Force back then. And uh, I was a little surprised that uh, a dog handler with some, uh, I'd already seen dirt, eating dirt in, uh, in the Middle East, was expected to have spit shine boots and polished belt buckles and stuff, and I couldn't figure out why. A dog team that was supposed to be stealth and darkness on a perimeter of a B-52 pad was supposed to shine like a billboard, but uh, uh, SAC for me was a little bit of a shock. Most of the guys there had never been offshore, so my my uh, <clears throat> military bearing was starting to flatten a little bit. Uh, Sam, uh, the dog that I got there, was absolutely incredible. The dog I was supposed to pick up when I came in was having medical issues, so he was red-tagged. And Sam's handler um, came down with appendicitis, so all of a sudden this bigger, better, meaner dog became available, and that was no question in my mind. I wanted Sam. Uh, I went through a whole bunch of uh, uh, books and uh, candy bars with that dog before I was allowed to hook him up and get him out of the kennel, but uh, did that without getting bit, and that was an accomplishment. Wow. Uh, incredible dog. Uh, roadside barbecues. Uh, if, if I, you know, if there was anything that would have kept me in, in Blytheville, Arkansas in 1967, 68, uh, the locals, uh, black guys, would uh, take their truck, pull up on the side of the road somewhere, pull out the barbecue, and start cooking at about 10 in the morning, and, man, you could smell this stuff up and down the roads going in and out of Blytheville <laughs> on all four corners of a compass. And I'll tell you what, if you ever had, you know, roadside pork or, or barbecued catfish there, you'd, you'd be heading back on a regular basis. That was some of the best food I'd ever seen anywhere. Um, miss that. That I miss. The uh, Dairy Queen, a reference to Dairy Queen, real simple. Dairy Queen was the civic center of Blytheville, Arkansas. That's how big that <laughs> town was. And <laughs> if, uh, if it didn't happen at Dairy Queen, it didn't happen. And it, it was uh, the, social, the social center of, of Blytheville. So, uh, That's good. Always okay, uh, a quick <laughs> burger, yeah. Yeah, I was in fact too, so I know what you're talking about. I served uh, here. <laughs> Flew on the B-52s, though. That, that was a thrill. Now, you uh, 
your pre-deployment, you, you went to Texas to Camp Bulis and prepared for Vietnam. Uh, you got to Vietnam in August of 1968. You arrived at Tonsonut. Uh Your dog's name was Sarge. You were assigned to Sarge. And I'm going to let you run with this. I mean, you went to Chu, uh, Chu Chi, Cholan, Benoit, Long Ben, all over the, the, the area there. Uh, tell me about your experiences in Vietnam. I'm going to let you run with the ball, John. Well, I, by the time I got to Nam, I, I, I didn't realize at the time that here I am. I'm my third dog on the third continent in my first enlistment, which was pretty unusual. I mean, there was guys that paralleled me probably, but uh, not too many. And most everybody else is a, a one tour out of Gonus. So uh, I'd pretty much been through more than most anybody else, and I'm good training you know you're, you're a product of your life experiences so when the uh the tdy stuff and the ex- extra duty stuff uh came down the pike uh as requests uh, as a senior handler i was you know usually in the pile of, of selectees to go do this stuff so i got to see coochie with the army uh when they were short on dogs i got to see the army again at uh, long Bend, um on on uh, force base protection up there i i uh, made a couple trips to benoit we'll get into the benoit trip because that's where i saw a douglas a26 sitting on the ramp but uh, probably probably the the real stickler was being loaned out to the marine corps you know air force dog team loaned to the marine corps uh embassy security staff in saigon to a warehouse in cholon and I was posted, I got picked up by 716th MP Army at the gate to the base and taken down to Cholon every night for about 10 nights, 11 nights. And uh, there was a certain commodity at this warehouse in Cholon for the embassy that, yeah, I don't know if you want to get into that or not. But uh, Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guarding a where about a, probably a six seven thousand square foot warehouse with a wall around it in in the middle of the the ghetto of saigon that had more vc in it during the daytime than uh, than probably any other place in south core and charlie sees a dog team going on to uh warehouse property at night they they had to be able to figure out pretty quick well there must be something in there that we want so first night wasn't too bad. Uh, they lit up the walls and and tried to snipe me a few times. And second, third, fourth night got a little hairier. Uh, good friends in seven sixteenth let me swap out a, a Mattel M sixteen for an M seventy nine launcher with a whole bag of uh, junkyard loads, which kind of evened the score. The property was adjacent to a cemetery, and. Uh, uh, back then, rules of engagement, cemeteries, churches, and temples were not, you know, you weren't allowed to fire into them. So I uh-huh. tested the tested the rules of engagement for a couple of nights there. <laughs> but uh, found out later on, many years later, what the hell I was guarding. And I'm, I was reading recently a book by a guy named Davies is talking about uh, microgravel uh, being used on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And uh, turns out, turns out, microgravel was made was batched up out of uh, ammonium perchlorate, this rocket fuel, dry rocket fuel. And uh, 
it's fine. It's inert until it gets wet. And when it gets wet, if you can keep it wet, you're okay. But if it dries out, it crystallizes. And when it crystallizes, it becomes extremely explosive. So the microgravel was obviously going out the butt end of 123s on the trail so that uh, the guys at, uh, at Disneyland at NKP could hear, uh, with, through their sensors, could hear the VC stepping on the microgravel on the trail or the unfortunate ones who drove vehicles over it. Because uh, if you had a little bit of uh, ammonium perchlorate powder crystallized on your fingers and you snapped your fingers, you'd probably take off your half of your chest cavity in your head. Well, so this is some pretty pretty bad stuff. But, uh, I know. I was at NKP for a while, too. Uh, okay. You won't hold it against. My reference to Disneyland is with respect. To no, I friend. won't. No, I won't. Especially, <laughs> with, especially with the commando units over there and flying over the trail and stuff like that. We lost a lot of good men out of NKP. Yeah. You mentioned, I want yeah. to, uh, you tell folks about Chew Cheek. You went up there to guard the perimeter, and that was what you need to be guarding, right? Yeah, well, we were, we were uh, augmentees up there. I think it was the 79th was the host at Coochie, so somebody up there had to make a request for dogs through, probably through MACV, and they just started plucking teams from, uh, I believe there was two guys from Benoit, two, two of us from Tonsonut that were up there. We're supposed to be up there for like a week to two weeks. But uh, we're on the north perimeter at Coochie, and dogs aren't alerting outside the wire at night. They were alerting inside, and everybody was pretty much, uh, you know, clamped down. They knew that there were sentry dogs on the property, so nobody wanted to get bit. But uh, when we kept telling them the problem wasn't outside the wire, the problem was inside the wire, uh, somebody up there got upset and kicked us out and sent us back early. I don't, I don't think we were up there for more than three or four nights. But uh, now we find out. Well, we've you know the, the Aussies uh, to their yeah the Aussies were the first ones to discover the tunnels up there. But but I don't think they uh, they understood how far uh, they those tunnels went all the way from the Cambodian border to the flight line at Tonsonu. Uh, yeah, we we discovered uh, uh, some clothing and food waste and some other stuff in in tunnels under the runway uh there were drainage tunnels under the runway at tonsonute and that was much later on but uh you know so this this tunnel complex coochie was the the coochie tunnel system wasn't just coochie it was from iron triangle all the way to saigon yeah that area but, was, uh, uh, they, did, they didn't like the idea that the air force was telling them they didn't know what they were doing you know <laughs> I understand those tunnels that the dogs were alerting that the enemy was inside the wire and nobody was catching on to it. Is that that, that what you're getting well, at? Well, yeah. Yeah, basically they thought they were being, that you know, the perimeter was being penetrated, but uh, the, they didn't have to penetrate the perimeter. They were underneath the entire whole facility up there at Coochie. They started That's turning cool. over 55-gallon drums and hooches. They'd have found tunnels. Tell us a little bit about Sarge. How'd your dog do over there in Vietnam? Uh, he's the reason I came home. No question. Uh, of course, being canine, you get placed into situations that, uh, again, the one man, one dog, 40 acres or 20 acres, whatever it is, you're expected to plug stuff up. 
And uh, when you're young and foolish and uh, and you think you're bulletproof, that doesn't seem like such a bad situation. But uh, we were always between the bad guys coming in on the perimeter and the the good guys, the straight legs in their bunkers and towers. And hell, they had 60s and 50 cal and 90 millimeter, and you're 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 in between the two of them if you if you discover Charlie coming in or or penetration on a perimeter. So you better learn to eat dirt real quick. Um, Sarge was an incredible beast. He was, uh, I've still got a tattoo on my right calf from good old Sarge and a a bad attitude night where he gave me a mental adjustment. But uh, uh, that dog was probably the most incredible animal I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, he's with me every day ever since. He's the reason you got home. What did, what did you mean by that? He kept me alive. Okay. That uh, a dog. Um, people don't understand. You know, uh, I, we worked nights. We were the night vision before starlights were readily available. Canine was night vision, and a dog can see you wince when you pass gas in the dark at twenty yards. Hmm. Uh, he can he can smell you pass gas at 200 yards and he can hear you pass gas at a thousand yards you're you're, (laughs) once the dog's locked in on you you're not going away you're just going to die tired because uh, running doesn't help and uh, a 90 pound chef can pick up a 120 pound man and shake him in the air Uh, yeah they're uh uh, pound for pound there's a the dogs are probably five to seven times more powerful than a adult male human and uh incredible senses they're smart uh they're tolerant and they don't kiss and tell (laughs) (laughs) and uh you can all you can always trust them because they're the most reliable loyal critters in the planet you know so all of those factors come into play when you're trying to do your job and stay alive at the same time a uh, pretty incredible relationship uh, gets formed. Uh, the chemistry, as long as it's right, the chemistry is incredible. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, John, great story. We're going to our last break, folks. We'll be back in just a minute. Please stay with us. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're uh, with John Hemp, uh, Dog Cannon, Vietnam. John, um, we had the A-26 Invader uh, fighter-bomber at MKP to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That aircraft had been in three wars. I love that aircraft. Uh, you fell in love with it, too. Tell us uh, briefly about the first time you saw the A-26, uh, why you liked it, and then getting on that Freedom Bird to come home in '69. Well, I share your passion for that plane. I was one of those kids back in probably 61, 62 that had one hanging from the ceiling in my room as a kid on fishing line. The um, A-26 was the hot rod uh, mid-twin-engine uh, bomber of World War II, no question. I didn't understand to the extent that they were deployed in Korea, and as it turns out, there was more tonnage dropped by A-26s in Korea than B-29s. Wow. And uh, I'm hauling dog food uh, from Tonsonut to Benoit because a pallet got misdelivered, I think. A couple of pallets of dog food got misdelivered, so we were uh, tasked with, with taking Benoit, their dog chow. And I'm driving along the outside of uh, Perimeter Road at Benoit, and I look over on the flight line, and I can see a World War II bomber in a revetment. Uh, had a hole in the midships in it, about the size of a garbage can lid. And I thought, damn, you know, that's a Douglas A-26. It's got some funny wingtip tanks on it, and it looked a little a little bit different, but uh, I knew what it was. And I went went home to Tonsonut that day, and I'm telling guys at Tonsonut, I saw a World War II bomber on the flight line at, uh, at Benoit, and they're all telling me I'm smoking the wrong stuff. <laughs> and uh, went back the last the, the second day uh, with the last of the supplies and, and chow, and it's gone. Uh, so it obviously got patched up, put back in the air, or sent back to NKP for repair. But uh, I, uh, I I have had uh, you know I I grew up in that uh, g- generation of transition from everything but props going jet, and uh, yeah. the A twenty six in Nam proved itself, no question. Uh, I think oh, yeah. the kill ratio for trucks on the trail was so much in favor of a twin-engine recip uh, A26 over anything else they could throw at Charlie on the trail. At, uh, what an incredible yeah. airplane. And what an incredible oh. group of guys, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that, ain't, that ain't your daddy's Oldsmobile, you know. Uh, sure. You don't just hop in it and turn the key. It took, a, it took an incredible effort to keep uh, 14 to 18 of those things running and, and in the air every night. Uh, well, you got eight, yeah, we had eight fifty caliber machine guns in the nose, three fifty calibers in each wing, and the top turret could be uh, locked forward for two more fifty caliber machine guns. That is awesome firepower. All right, I don't want to. Well, yeah, um, a single ma deuce is a single ma deuce is <laughs> is devastating when you start I know it. Uh, the multiplicity. <laughs> wow, it's just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> John, I want to run out of time, but I do want to cover. Uh, when you got home, you talked to a uh, lady 
that you never knew had served in World War II as a Rose of the River. Her name was Pearl. Tell us about Pearl, and then let's get into the Dogs Project, okay? Tell us oh, about okay. Um, I, I, my mom retired to a small town up in northern California in the timber country called Weaverville. And I would go uh, as frequently as I could. I'd go up and visit with her for a couple of days and then get back into my cycle of uh, at the speed of life. And it turns out that one of my mom's friendships that developed up there was with this lady, Pearl, who lived across the street from her. And the two of them would get up and have coffee every morning together. They'd share the newspaper. They'd waddle down to the post office and to the general store and then back to the house for a nap. And that was their, their daily uh, constitution. Well, I was explaining to my mom leaving on a Sunday that I had to get back to Chino, uh, that I had volunteered to work on a Douglas A-26 that was at uh, Dave Talachet's MARC. And Pearl looked at me and, and said, what kind of airplane are you working on? And I said, you know, what does Pearl know about airplanes? I said, it was a, a twin-engine World War II bomber. And she looked at me again, and she said, well, is it a, a, a Mitchell or a Martin? And I about dropped, you know, what's this woman know about Mitchells and Martins? And I said, no, it was a, a Douglas. And she says, well, was it an A-20 or an A-26? <laughs> and I'm going, holy smokes, Pearl, what do you, how, what, what's it, how do you know about a Douglas A-26? She said, well, if it's the A-26, I built them. Pearl was a Rosie to the Riveter at the Long Beach plant in Long Beach, California from 43-44 building Douglas A-26s. So conversation ensued on the porch of my mother's house with Pearl, uh, Rosie the Riveter, and uh, she got me to commit to the fact that somebody needs to write a book about this airplane because she had a passion for him too. So There'll be a book coming out later this year called String of Pearls, and it's in honor of Pearl and in honor of everybody that ever flew them or nabbed them or wrenched them or loaded them or, or whatever. It's a, it's a uh, semi-fictional novel on three wars of the 26th. Yep, that is your upcoming book, and, and I'll be glad to contribute to that. Uh, I love God, that airplane. You. Now, uh, you got involved in a project that I just thought was Outstanding. It's called the Dogs Project. It's also called the Rocky Mountain Dogs. Uh, tell us about that. Um, back in 07, 06, 07, I don't think any of the old non dog walkers, there was a, a I, I think uh, the membership of the Vietnam Dog Handlers Association back then was probably about 2,000 survivors of Vietnam that had walked the dog in Nam. And that's as close as I got to uh, being active. I, I wasn't. I didn't attend reunions, and I, you know, I had the blinders on. I wasn't an American Legion guy or a VFW guy. I was a. I was an investigator for seventeen years, and then uh, went got into other things. But uh, I, I met after attending my very first reunion thirty seven years or 38 years out of Vietnam, I attended my first reunion in D.C. with VDHA and the guys from Vietnam Security Police Association, K-9. And I spent four days in D.C. with uh, guys that I hadn't seen in almost 40 years. 
And I came back with an itch. I had to do something. And I had been a volunteer at the VA facility in Loma Linda uh, when I could and uh, didn't do that often enough. And a parachute packer and another dog walker uh, and myself uh, got together here in Southern California and we just decided that uh, it was time to take a thank you to the military dog walkers of the current generation. So we, we set up a barbecue at Camp Pendleton and uh, it was the second one actually. These two guys had done it the year before in 2007. So March of 2008, I'm sitting at Camp Pendleton watching about a dozen or so Marine Corps dog walkers uh, getting a thank you and really appreciating it. Um, and it was just a couple hours of, of genuine camaraderie. The uh, the generation gap melted in two seconds. I mean, we are all talking dog. And I thought, you know what? If we can do this for the Marines, we can do it for the Navy at Ventura. We can do it for the Air Force at Edwards. We can do it for the Army at, uh, at Irwin. You know, we need to get this thing going. And of course, the other two guys are shaking their heads wondering, what the hell are you talking about, man? You don't have the money to put on a $300 barbecue. Uh, I had all these places. Well, you know, like anybody else, I mean, you, you start cranking out ball caps and T-shirts and uh, and you, you put on the mooch pooch apron and go around and mooch whatever you can get in donations. And uh, so that's what I started doing. And they were foolish enough to join me. And 2009, we did 14 kennels in Southern California and the Southwest, Arizona, and, and took steak barbecues to these kids. In uh, 2010, we did, uh, I think, 17, uh, including our first Iron Dog competition as part of one of these events where we actually had dog teams from different branches all competing to see who had the, 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 the who was going to go home with the lumber, you know, who, who had the best dog teams. In uh, 2011, it was up to about 20. In 2012, it was up to 22. And all of a sudden, we're Southwest, not just California, Arizona. And, we're into Texas, and we're into uh, Lost in the Wo- Fort Lost in the Woods in Ohio. And uh, <laughs> uh, by uh, 2018, when I turned the leash over to the kids that were the first recipients of stakes when we first started the project, 10 years into this thing, uh, we had done over 400 barbecues and events, coast to coast, border to border. And it, it was a movement that had its own wings. It's, uh, it's incredible. The reference to Rocky Mountain Dog, uh, i got to salute Kevin Sanka. Kevin is a gold star dad. Um, we had a tradition at all of our events where the very first stake off the grill went to the lowest ranking dog handler and was always presented by the highest ranking individual in the assemblage. And uh, as the project grew, that very often became generals that were handing stakes to E3s. Uh, if you touch food before the Jeep dog got his food, you were probably in for an ass whooping. <laughs> and uh, uh, Kevin was shocked to find out that his son had been a first stake recipient at 29 Palms on two occasions. Uh, we lost David, Kevin's son, in 2013 um, in Iraq. Blue on green. And... Uh, He was a little surprised that nobody at uh, TAPS knew who the Dogs Project was. Uh, David had put us on the list, on his memorial donation list. And when he discovered through, uh, you know, 
a mix of information that was provided to me. Finally got a hold of VDHA, I think, and VDHA directed them to me. And I explained to him who we were and what we did and why we did it and invited he and his wife to come join us uh, at an August uh, 29 Palms event here in Southern California that year in 2013. And Kevin was was uh, very accommodating, uh, came and joined us and spent the weekend with us here. And I think when he realized what this project was and how significant it was to these kids, uh, it wasn't 30 days after he returned to Colorado that he called me and asked me if he could start a dogs project. Uh, extension in the Midwest and uh, to his credit that guy was on the road 24-7 I think he would he did multiple kennels in a, in any given week from Virginia to Colorado and uh, the Rocky Mountain Dogs became officially a 501 which we never were we were the Dogs Project was just a group of volunteers who thought that this was the right thing to do and to uh, it obviously had a an impact on the kids because they sure appreciated what we were doing. John, that has a uh, story. The old guys from Vietnam, the dog handlers from Vietnam, honoring yep. the young dog handlers of today. Uh, we are just about out of time, John. Fascinating story. Uh, I know you love dogs. I love dogs. Uh, they are men's best friend and my friend. We will get together down the road, and we are going to talk more about that airplane we love, the A-26 Innovator. Sounds good to you? Yeah, it sounds real good to me. My pooch is licking my leg. She's telling me it's time to get off the phone. <laughs> All right, Don, thank you so much, man. Great interview. Hey, Pete. Bless. I will, and I'll share dirt with you anyway, buddy. Anywhere. All right. Anytime. Thanks, All right. You bet. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.